Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up. It's Friday, December 9th. Today's podcast focuses exclusively on this week's features from the WFUV Newsroom. I'm David Escobar. And I'm Shana Walsh. It's the 16th year of FUV's benefit concert, and this year it's finally back to being an in-person event. WFUV's music director, Russ Boris, sat down to talk with Robin Shannon about this year's holiday cheer. So, Russ Boris, what does this year's holiday cheer lineup look like? So we have a pretty amazing lineup. And after not having uh, done holiday cheer for a couple of years, we really wanted to make sure we came back, you know, big. And, um, and I think we've really done that. We've got Chris Stone, Kingfish Ingram, who had headlined the Apollo Theater back in the spring. Uh, we've got uh, a longtime FUV favorite in Lucius, who were also at the Beacon Theater back in the spring. Uh, and Spoon, uh, our headliner for the night, Austin's Rock Ambassadors, who have got, you know, a nearly 30-year career at this point, which is insanity. And if you go to a Spoon show, it's unbelievable to see how ridiculously consistent that band has been over that time frame. But also the fact that you, you stand there and you go, oh, I know that song, and I know that song, and I know that song. And it's just one after another. It's like every song that WFUB has ever played from Spoon like finds its way into a set because they've had so many incredible radio songs. And you know, we're just thrilled that we have this lineup that I think is going to be uh, making for a very special evening at Holiday Cheer. A nonstop party, it sounds like. So when and where is Holiday Cheer happening this year? Holiday Cheer is again back at the Beacon Theater in New York City, which is just an historic venue Um I mean, if you're going to talk about a perfect place to see a show, that's really it. Um, the most incredible sound in the city, I think. Uh, and it is on Tuesday, December 6th at the Beacon Theater. And where can people get tickets? Uh, you, uh, they go to WFUB.org slash cheer. All the information is right there. You can go to Ticketmaster. If you go to the box office, you save on some of those fees. So that's something if you want to go in person and do that, that's uh, a little tip from us. You want to go in person and buy your tickets. And Russ, pick one Spoon song that you're looking forward to hearing at the concert at Halloween. Oh Year. man, um, that's that's so crazy because there's, like I said, there's just so many Spoon songs in that catalog that are that are really incredible. Um, I turn my camera on might be one because of the groove that it does. Although I'll be honest, um, there are t- sometimes Spoon will cover a particular John Lennon song, and it looks like Britt Daniel from Spoon is his happiest in that moment and singing that song. Uh, so that does make for kind of a special, um, a special little treat in the show. And I, hopefully they do that one, too. And do we plan on having any kind of Christmas theme songs that we know of? The band does do a Christmas song or two. I don't know for certain if they're going to break one out because you never know. I mean, sometimes set lists change and whatnot. But I think it's entirely possible you could you could hear a Christmas song or two that night. All right. Thanks so much, Reservoirs. Thank you. That was WFEV's Robin Shannon talking with music director Russ Boris. For more information about Holiday Cheer, visit WFUV.org. Every month, WFUV brings you Cityscape. Cityscape aims to encapsulate the people, places, and vibes of New York City. Pizza is an iconic part of New York City's culture. But what's it like for women who work in the industry? WFUV's Isabel Danzis spoke with women pizza makers about their experience in the city. Pizza. Everybody loves it. From the classic $1 slice to artisan pies, pizza is an important part of New York City's culture. Alexandra Mortati works importing foods from Italy to the United States. Because of her job, she has connections with many pizza makers. A few years ago, she noticed that women in the industry were not getting recognition for their work. She started Women in Pizza to make sure that women all over the world 
could be acknowledged for their contributions. Um, we saw that there was such an underrepresented segment of women. It was a growing segment, but you never really heard from the women in the same way that you heard from the men. According to Mortati, the pizza industry is still heavily dominated by men. And Women in Pizza pushes back against that. The group connects female pizza makers with each other, increases the visibility of women in the industry, and empowers women who are succeeding. Um, but I think it's still like having to, to prove yourself to be taken seriously when you walk into a room commanding that presence, showing that what you're saying is of value, showing that you know how to run a business, that you should be taken seriously, that you're just as capable as making a pizza, even if you're not used to seeing a woman behind the counter. Like, our hands are gentler. We're better with the dough. Georgia Caparuscio is the owner of a pizza restaurant in Hell's Kitchen. She studied pizza and the culinary arts in Naples before coming to the United States. When she came to the U.S., she started working with her father, Roberto Caparuscio, at his first restaurant in New York City, Don Antonio, in Hell's Kitchen. Flash forward to now, Georgia is running the restaurant. Every the, the co-worker of my father make fun of me and say, oh, you're Italian, you're a woman, but you don't know how to make pizza and pasta. So, and I say, oh, let's, let's show them that I can make good pizza and hear them, basically. Caparuscio met Mortadi at a pizza expo in Las Vegas and is now an ambassador for Women in Pizza. Caparuscio says the conversations facilitated by Women in Pizza inspire more women to join the industry. So I just, I just try to uh, push and speak about this job and what I, my experience, so more women can, you know, be closer to change of they have patience to make this pizza is not just predominate uh, male. Caparuso took over completely from her father during the pandemic. But even now, she says that she still faces doubt from people. I was every day I'm facing, you know, the face of the cost, not customers, but also pizza makers coming from Italy and also come over here. Uh, the, the face was, oh, I'm looking at an alien. I push myself to make a good pizza, but also to be show off that everybody that, you know, a female woman can make good pizza. Mortadi has seen the organization change minds in real time. I was at an event in Colorado with a bunch of women in pizza um, in September, and this, this, it was a little pizza festival, and I had a women in pizza um, booth there with three of my ambassadors baking pizzas, and I was handing out some shirts to my colleague, and this woman comes up to me with her daughter, and she's like, we love pizza, and she's like, I never thought that this was something my daughter could do. Erin Roshai works with women in pizza as well. While not a pizza maker, she is in the industry. She is the operations director at the organization Slice Out Hunger. They donate pizzas to people in need and work to create food security. You know, pizza uh, is is not immune to a lot of the uh, disparities that we see in the the food and beverage industry in general. Um, you know, it's uh, it's definitely it's definitely something that needs work. Pizza is a quintessential part of New York City's culture. And while Mortadi and Caparuso both agreed that the industry is getting more inclusive of all people, there is still a long way to go. That was WFUV's Isabel Danzis talking about gender disparities in the pizza-making industry in New York. Social activism can take many forms. MADC is a Harlem-based dance company, and this organization is fighting for causes they care about, and they're doing it through dance. 
WFUV's Leah Mallory has more about their work in their annual dance festival that highlights the work of BIPOC artists. There are hundreds of dance companies throughout New York, but MOD Arts Dance Collective Incorporated, known as MADC, is a Harlem-based dance company that is using this particular art form to tell their stories. Leah Tubbs, the founding artistic director of MADC, says the role of the dance company is to provide a platform for artists of color. This year, MADC had their fifth annual Move to Change Festival, which highlights the work of BIPOC artists. The goal of Move to Change is to educate, inspire, and illuminate their culture and their histories through movement aesthetics as well as through film that really resonates with them in a real and authentic way. Tubb says that this year's festival was the biggest one yet, featuring both live and pre-recorded performances with a total of 25 artists. Randolph Ward is one of the featured creators. He's a choreographer and the director of RTW Dance in Miami, Florida. He describes why showcasing his piece at the festival was so important. This piece is a solo from the full dance evening entitled Boys Will Be Boys. It dissects toxic masculinity and American ideologies on manhood. And it sort of chronicles the consequences of not allowing men to fully express their full humanity. The themes of the festival were joy and love, but Ward said that Move to Change explored all the nuances of these emotions. Well, you can't talk about joy without talking about pain. My piece kind of deals with more of the painful side, but that's how I connect to it. And during his piece, Ward vocalized this. I'm a man. Keep my head on a swivel. Never let him get me slipping. A real man. A black man. A Caribbean man. I'm a real man! Ward wants his work to spark conscious conversations about humanity. He says the arts are an effective way to do this. Throughout our history in America, performing arts is kind of the first place where people are introduced to new ideas. And Annabella Lensu, choreographer and dance teacher of 30 years, says the exploration of these new ideas through dance can lead to social transformation. I think change is done through movement, through dance. I see how when people move, change internally and get a communion between body, mind, and spirit. So that's why, you know, for me, dance is, quote-unquote, my religion. Lensu emphasizes that Move to Change is about more than just dancing. For me, art, you cannot separate from activism. And the founding director of MADC, Leah Tubbs, agrees. She believes movement is the oldest form of effective communication and encourages progressive dialogue. I feel that Move to Change allows us to be able to have conversations that maybe don't feel as accessible seeing them on the news and social media, but I feel dance allows there to be a little more malleability for people to, to have these conversations after experiencing the art. Tubbs hopes the dance festival can be a way to improve the accessibility of positive black and brown experiences. Because there's still such a um, deficit of spaces for us to share our stories, but also to be able to share stories that aren't being whitewashed or to appease um, the white gaze, but to really share honest experiences. Tubbs says they're continuing this effort of community building into the winter and spring by offering a free four-and-a-half-month workshop for budding BIPOC teen artists. 
at MADC, the work for making safe spaces for marginalized communities never stops. Dance will continue to be the chosen tool that they use to share their stories with the world. That was WFUV's Leah Mallory visiting MADC to talk about social activism through dance. For the first time since the beginning of the pandemic, the Apollo Theater hosted its legendary amateur night. Countless performers and musicians have gotten their start at the historic venue, located on 125th Street in Harlem. WFUV's Nicoletta Papavasilakis got to talk to the winner of the Child Star of Tomorrow category and get a history lesson on the theater. It's just like, oh my god, this is crazy. And I keep practicing it and I have a feeling I got this. And whenever I'm nervous, shake it up, Brianna. Well, Brianna Cameron's instinct was right. A week later, the 10-year-old singer won the Apollo Theater's Amateur Night. Her victory didn't come without hard work. I realized when you, when you really want to do something, you put your all into it. But Cameron also enjoys preparing for the show. I mm-hmm. love practicing. It's so much fun. The greatest love of all. I can't stop singing the song. Cameron wowed the crowd with her performance of Whitney Houston's Greatest Love of All. It's her favorite song. Cameron is no stranger to the Apollo stage. She first competed in Amateur Night in 2019, when she was only seven years old. While victory was a nice bonus for Cameron this time around, she was grateful to do what she loves and perform at the Apollo. I'm like literally having the best time of my life. All these amazing legends been here, so it's a dream come true. Some of the legends she's talking about are Ella Fitzgerald, James Brown, and Michael Jackson, just to name a few. They all got their start at the Apollo Theater. But according to Marion J. Caffey, producer of Amateur Night, they weren't the performers that we know today. They were young artists just like the ones coming tonight, walking through that back door, nervous. You know, James Brown was not the godfather of soul when he walked in the door. Michael Jackson was not the king of pop when he walked in the door. Ella Fitzgerald wasn't Ella Fitzgerald that turned into the first lady of song. In fact, the first lady of song almost didn't become a singer at all. Ella Fitzgerald competed in Amateur Night in 1934. Originally, she was going to dance. Here to dance her little heart out for you, please welcome Miss Ella Fitzgerald. Okay, Ella, welcome to Amateur Night. You got your dancing shoes ready? But at the last minute, she changed her mind. I'm sorry, what did you say? You don't want to (laughs) dance? Well, what are you going to do? You'd like to sing something. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, Ella, you can sing something instead. That night, she sang Judy by Hoagie Carmichael. She started out slow. If her voice can bring every hope of spring, that's Judy, my Judy. If her eyes say yes, but you're wrong in your guess. Then she belted it out. With as much confidence Fitzgerald brought to the stage, she was still figuring it out. But the Apollo Theater provided a safe space for her, in more ways than one. As a black singer, there were only a handful of places that would let her perform at the time. So Amateur Night became a haven for black artists. You know, before black artists were allowed to go into other venues, 
Um, it has a rich and long history of allowing black artists to come and do their thing, you know. That was Marion J. Caffey, the producer you heard from before. He says now people travel from all over the world just to compete in amateur night. So we welcome everybody. I mean, in one show you could see kids from India, kids from Japan, kids from Korea, Philippines, Canada, you know, L.A., 127th Street. Amateur Night has been running for 88 years and is still going. To this day, the Apollo stage has given people a chance to do what they love and perhaps jumpstart a career in show business. Maybe Brianna Cameron will join the Hall of Fame of the Apollo stars. That was WFUV's Nicoletta Papavasilakis talking about the Apollo Theater's Amateur Night and its history of empowering artists. And that's it from us. But you can check out the What's What weekly wrap-up every Friday for features exclusively from the WFUV newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV What's What daily podcast. It explores current events, culture, news, and hot topic issues surrounding the New York metropolitan area. And it includes features and interviews just like the ones you heard exclusively from FUV. You can catch new episodes every weekday at 3, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or find out more at WFUVnews.org. I'm Shana Walsh. And I'm David Escobar.